to Garage Night. Uh, I have with me today... Uh, Jeff. And I'm Randall, and we're going to start in with the news. Hopefully Andy will uh, join us a little later, but either way, um, we're going to join Ford in paying our respects to Holden, the uh, Australian automaker, uh, now GM-owned, uh, has a, a long line of some pretty pretty fun cars, and they've uh, they've gone toe to toe with Ford for a very long time down there, with uh, things such as the Holden Commodore and all the V8 supercar uh, races that they have down there. So Ford was was pretty good about it, and and posted some some kind tweets about you know they're saddened uh, to hear that they're that they're closing down there. Um, they were good good competition down there and whether it's just you know polite marketing or whether the people down there actually you know have good relationships uh, across uh, company lines it's it's just nice to see a little bit of camaraderie because competition is good for everybody um, especially those of us who like to watch motor car racing and um, yeah the Holden Commodores were some some neat bits of kit they were a great competition for the Australian Falcon in a lot of their uh, early years um, doing, you know, kind of the, both in, in racing and, um, you know, kind of in the, in the market uh, share that they, um, you know, kind of in that market that they uh, presided in. Uh, uh, Holden made some absolutely beautiful cars that go all the way back to the, I think they're the fifties um, from what I'm seeing here. Um, all types of different, you know, they had beautiful muscle cars and some really kind of ornate, cool looking old, um, uh, tri five looking cars. And, um, you know, I always thought it was interesting how, how, uh, GM kept the, uh, engineering divisions in the U S and Australia different, you know, so you see a lot of different styling, even though it may have been owned or shared, but I'm not sure when did, when did GM acquire, uh, Holden, you know, I'm not sure when uh, when they acquired them. I don't think they made them out of whole cloth, though. Um, what I do know is that one reason for the difference in engineering is not only safety and emission standards being hugely different, but you know Australia is a right-hand drive market, which GM has been pulling out of. They pulled out of the UK and uh, and some other right-hand drive markets over the last few years. They're just you know cutting costs. They've never made a lot of money over there, so that's one reason that they've done it. Also, it's just a completely different uh, valuation uh, process down there. You know, they like mm-hmm. the smaller cars; they're more European. Right. Um, but even then, they they didn't. You know, they don't sell the Holden Utes uh, in you know any other countries, to my uh, to my knowledge. Possibly in some uh, P- Pacific Island sort of uh, regions. But generally, Australia is kind of a very specific market. Uh, I went down there for a couple of weeks, two years ago or so, and half the fun was looking around at the different vehicles, uh, you know, mm-hmm. new and old, and all their dealerships being just packed full of very alien-looking vehicles and stuff that, you know, when people come up here from Australia, they look at our you know, F series trucks at four and they look at, you know, our, our, uh, 
Camaros and, and challengers and stuff. Some of them that they don't get down there and they go, man, that's really cool. You guys get that stuff. And I'm down there looking at, you know, the Holden Utes and I'm looking at the, mm-hmm. at the time global Rangers and, and all sure. sorts of weird cars down there. What is that? You know, I, I wish I could get one of those. And they're like, why? That's just like a normal car. Right. But I had a guy just uh, a couple of days ago, I was out driving my Falcon um, and I was out at uh, Crown Point and uh, I was doing the little loop there and and, uh, and this uh, guy, uh, my window down, he's like, oh my gosh, it's a Falcon. He's like, I haven't seen one of those in the U.S. in ages. And uh, I think it was from Australia. So he had seen a lot of them in Australia, but comes to the U.S. and you don't see them anywhere. Um, it's kind of interesting how that works. But uh, something interesting, I guess, uh, Holden... Um, originally was founded as a saddlery manufacturer in South Australia. And they uh, moved into the automotive uh, industry and began building the Model T for a short time period before being acquired by GM in 1931. And uh, it was renamed General Motors Holden's LTD um, for a time. And uh, it looked like at some point they switched back to just Holden. yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it uh, seems like they're moving a lot of their resources out of that market and into electrification uh, and, and such down there. And and that would be something that would kind of, that's going to be a, a struggle down, down in Australia because they are the largest coal exporter in the world. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they. Uh, you would think they would be a lot more up on uh, sustainable stuff, having all of their, um, all their major cities on their coasts, no offense mm-hmm. to Alice Springs, but they're, you know, all the major cities are on the coasts, uh, you know, your Melbournes and your Brisbane's and Sydney, of course, uh, are all out, uh, on the edges. So you'd think that there'd be a lot more, uh, tidal generators. And then with the whole interior of the, of the continent, being less than suitable for human habitation that they would right. do a lot more solar, but they of course will want to push their largest export, which is coal. So they're going to want to kind of run on that. It's the same way that say Oregon is very much into, you know, trees and hydroelectric dams and uh, Texas is very into oil and, and the such. So down there, they're um, not as uh, not as up on the renewable energy. So their electricity costs are higher than you would expect um, from what I experienced. And so electrification of cars uh, might not be, they may not be the, the spearhead of the advancement of those technologies. So uh, it could be apropos that they're moving the money from, Australia to electrification and, uh, you know, autonomous vehicle tech and such. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. But yeah, there's, there's lots of fun stuff that's, uh, come out of Australia. And I think that's a, a subject on a zone is just, uh, you know, maybe our favorite vehicles to come out of Australia. Um, and there's, there's plenty of those, um, you know, stuff that, uh, stuff that 
influenced or was influenced by uh, U.S. like the Falcon X XB or XD from the '73, I believe. Um, right, yeah. is very very much a Mustang, uh, very much a Boss 302 kind of a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, w- uh, while we're on the subject, uh, Eric Bana is a is a huge. Uh, you know, gearhead uh, from Australia, and he has a he has a movie. Love the Beast was a uh, documentary film in '09, directed by Eric Bana and, and featuring him. And it's got Leno, it's got Clarkson, uh, and it's uh, talking about his buildup of of his 1973 f- uh, Falcon XB uh, and just that, his growing up and. Cars. Those yeah. cars are just amazing looking. I, I I forget how aggressive they're styled, you know, for the time. I love where it where it pinches right at the back haunches where the mm-hmm. where the windows slope in and just creates the 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 back a third of that car is just very strong, but it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't upset the the way that the front looks. It's a very, very aggressive car. It's funny, you know, you look at the very first-gen Falcons, like what I drive, and then you look at one of these, and the styling is entirely different. You know, mine's Completely very, different world. Yeah, mine's very soft and sweeping lines and, and Art Deco kind of looking. I mean, these are very aggressive, very rough, rigid kind of looking cars. Very, I mean, they're, all, they're both beautiful, I think, in their own way. But... Uh, yeah, just super interesting the contrast. But yeah, so go ahead. Anyway, love the beast. Yeah, it's just a, a wonderful documentary that I, anyone who loves cars to a to a to a deep extent, um, I, I recommend finding a way to to pull it up and watch it. It's well worth the time, and it, it talks about him taking it on a rally, like a <clears throat> like an official uh, rally race, and um, and you know the ups and downs of of restoring a car and racing it and restoring it again so highly i highly recommend that um so do you have any other thoughts on on holden no i think we pretty well covered it it's too bad they're closing it though i will you know i think that it's kind of cool to kind of have those unique uh auto manufacturers in australia that are you know kind of their own you know little offshoot of a company and um i don't know it, it's it's sad sad day to see that go it was a sad day when the falcon was discontinued too from uh ford australia yeah that's the thing is it, it all kind of seems to be dwindling down uh, a little bit um and kind of going out with a with a bit of a whimper which is which is a shame but at least the falcon did go out with a with a supercharged five liter version Sure. Yeah, they had a they they were always true to breed. I think um, mm-hmm. those were in in Australia have long for a long time been kind of like the poor man's Mustang. You know, like even you know, or, or just the Mustang. I guess it's kind of the the car that gets hot rotted the most. You know? Hey, maybe maybe in a decade and a half we can uh, look about picking picking one of those uh, last generations up and bringing them here as a gray market car. So. That could That's be true. Cool. Uh, gray market cars, another another fun thing. Um, uh, speaking of fun things, 
have you ever seen a highly modified Tesla in the wild? Uh, I have not. I don't think I've seen one with more than a wrap and maybe upgraded wheels. That's that's about it. But generally, they're kind of much like a Camry, just kind of driven. Uh, even the high-performance ones are already set up pretty dang well. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess there was a modified Model 3 that uh, they drove at Japan's uh, uh, Scuba. I am I am not fluent in uh, Japanese <laughs> language, uh, and I also don't watch the races over there. So go ahead and tell me exactly how wrong I am about my pronunciation of Tascuba. Um, but it, it was driven around the uh, uh, the circuit and almost matched the lap time of a McLaren F1. Wow. The F1 is just a monster of a car, you know, held the top speed record uh, for production cars for for years and years and years. Um, and it's just a an absolute, absolute powerhouse. Everyone who knows about cars knows about the McLaren F1. And uh, to have a, a Model 3, no less, not even a, a Model S, but a Model 3, uh, modified, it was uh, lowered, uh, roll bars, ceramic brakes, uh, lightweight wheels with uh, Michelin Cup 2s on it, um, and uh, a body kit that looks over the top, but apparently it actually did help with the downforce. Um, and when you're actually racing, downforce is a uh, is a big deal. Um, so it's, it's said that it ran a... 104.7 which is just a tenth off of a McLaren F1 and was faster than a Ferrari F40 Porsche which 911 GT3 which course was this uh it's uh in Japan it's TSUKUBA oh, how do you say it yep i i know it from uh Forza and such but i haven't uh i haven't watched a race there um in actuality, but the fact that around that kind of is a smaller track, so it's going to be pretty, pretty tight. So that's going to help with the, the electric motor having that high torque and being able to, able to squirt out of the corners. And this is likely an all wheel drive model. Um, so that's really going to help it accelerate out of those corners. Uh, I will say, you know, these, these cars look absolutely great with that body kit on it, you know, for a, for an all electric car, um, between the body kit and the wheels. I think that look, that's a really good look for that car. Yeah. And a car that people might put more up against a Prius than a uh, Ferrari. Uh, mm-hmm. most times the fact that it can beat the, the much storied F 40 on a real racetrack is, uh, that that's saying something you can, and it's not like they ripped the engine out, you know, or motor out. Like it's pretty, pretty mild modifications to consider what it's racing against uh lap time wise right so yeah, are we no, gonna it, we gonna continue to see this sort of thing coming out of uh skunk works you know uh, i i think that we'll probably see a little bit more development in the ev performance area the the tough part 
I think is, you know, for so long, manufacturers have been accustomed to uh, building and tuning gasoline engines and, you know, the firmware and the, and the just kind of the general premise of internal combustion engines and how they work and how to optimize them is pretty well known in, in that, um, in that realm. Um, when you look at electric drive, uh, vehicles, I think that maybe you're, it's a little bit riskier, I would say in that area, you know, cause, um, all of your inputs and all of your controls are directly uh, associated with your with your uh, engine management and your um, and what are the I'm sure many computers on those. So it's it's a little more foreign I think to some of those um, companies that specialize in modifying cars. So I think we're we're maybe a little bit slow slower to see the performance trend hit with these electric cars. Maybe because of that. Maybe the safety aspect. Maybe the uh, firmware that Tesla, uh, you know, has uploaded on their on their um, computers. Maybe that maybe that is uh, pre-locked down and, and uh, anti-third-party friendly. You know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. So that could be a lot of why we're seeing limitations in the in the performance region from electric cars, um, or just you know the the quickness to to get you know you, you know like when you see a Mustang come out. Within a month or two, you, you get you know you get tuned and you get chips and you get all of this stuff right from away. dozens of, of uh, yeah. manufacturers. You've got you know in Mustangs, you've got Steeda, you've got Roush, you've got Celine, you've got uh, you know all of uh, the smaller aftermarket companies, and you know you've yeah. got exhaust companies, you've got intake companies, you've got right. dozens of companies all coming out with stuff like you said within months. Uh, sometimes they talk about them before the car even comes out. Steeda will say, oh, we've already got ball joints because they have prior knowledge from Ford because OEMs will work directly with aftermarket companies uh, to, you know, help prop them up so that they can, you know, if there's aftermarket support for a car, some people are more likely to buy the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's been maybe a little bit slower to uptick on the electric car front. You know, you don't see Leafs, Nissan Leafs, or Teslas with a lot of aftermarket chip manufacturers making things to to update your your firmware or uh, you know to, or tuners or uh, you know because I, I, maybe it's just you know I'm just speculating here, but I think there's just a lot of safety and a lot of interconnectedness of the systems on those electric cars that you know make it increasingly difficult to tune them and to change programming without impacting other aspects of drivability or, or putting the drivers at risk, you know? I would tend to agree. Uh, I know that some companies such as Mercedes are trying to take, you know, the, the right to work on your own vehicles very much out of, out of the hands of, of uh, the non OEMs. And so, Along with that, they're saying that, hey, this is our proprietary technology. You know, this is our, we built this. We can't have other people monkeying with it. And, um, you know, Volvo uh, said a couple of years ago with the autonomous tech that they were going to be responsible for if something, you know, happened to an autonomous vehicle, someone got hurt, that they would be, they would be liable. And if the market follows that example, they're going to have to just legally, they're going to have to really restrict what you can do 
with the brain of your car so that they aren't held liable to something, an accident that happened because you messed with the car. So they're going to have to cover themselves, uh, which means that they'll have to lock us out of more and more. Right. But hopefully this is, this is more a, a sign of things to come in, instead of, oh, well, this is all they could do. Uh, hopefully this is more them showing, hey, you can do fun things uh, with, with these cars that isn't, you know, oh, we took a leaf and then our company put $85,000 into making it a monster. They're like, hey, here's kits you can go out and buy and modify like any other car because th- the Juke R with the uh, Godzilla drivetrain in it was still one of the coolest things I've ever seen, but that's not a viable mod for anyone else on the on the market. So this just being wheels and um you know carbon ceramic brakes like sure it's a lot of money but it's very doable with a little bit of help even a bozo like me can upgrade a brake system right right so yeah hopefully it's it's just more to come um and i'm gonna continue on the the ev route uh a little bit with with the the pickup wars i touched on a little bit last week but i i learned more about the nicola badger uh which you mentioned kind of the interesting um comparison of there being a tesla and a nicola uh, company uh making evs but they are quite different have you had a chance to look up the uh the badger at all yeah no i was looking at uh at the pictures of it it's a pretty sharp looking truck yeah, I wish the uh, I wish the Tesla would have looked a little bit more like this, less like a child drew it on a on a piece of paper, and more like a, a real truck. Yeah, I shouldn't be able to design the car, right? Um, when, when the Model Y and the Model Three, and you know, of course, the bigger ones all look so aesthetically pleasing, like gorgeous, you know, uh, like much like the Fisker Karma, and and you know, other people. Uh, or other vehicles drawn by the same uh, folks, I really had high hopes for it. And it's just kind of this back to the future wedge. It's like, I understand he's trying to, Elon's trying to get us to progress faster technologically so that we can someday uh, build a rocket to send him home. But (laughs) I wish it could look a little bit better in the doing so. Have you looked up the powertrain on the Badger? Um, So I'm looking at the, the specs for it, um, which is pretty impressive, uh, says what 906 horsepower, 980 foot pounds of torque, 600 mile range, and zero to 60 in 2.9 seconds. Yep, and it'll tow 8,000 pounds. You know, this seems one of those uh, kind of like the Tesla Roadster that Elon's promising that will do zero to 60 in, you know, 1.8 seconds and 400 mile range. It seems like it's maybe over promising, um, you know, especially from a company that doesn't have a product yet. Um, I, I'll, I'll agree while also reminding you that they, uh, the people said that he was overstating what the Model S could do. And today, the updated version of the Model S is doing even 
it's going faster and at a better range with software updates. And they're just releasing another software update to the Model 3s to increase their range by 45 <clears throat> miles or so just over the air. Yeah, it's pretty amazing how they've built in some of the over-the-air uh, update technology in some of these cars that, you know, they, they have the foresight to make them, uh, you know, capable to do that. You know, they're not just a, a, you buy a car and you're stuck in that time and they're continuing to show support for their uh, owners, you know, the owners who have purchased their cars, which I think is pretty cool. You don't really see that a lot um, beyond recalls and, uh, you know, warranty type issues. You don't see, um, you know, Ford or Chevy calling uh, customers back to, you know, improve their fuel mileage with a different injection system or something on their cars or a firmware update or whatever, unless there's a safety recall. Generally, that's not something that happens. Yeah, they generally uh, just bring them back. If, um, like, Ford with the uh, C-Max, it's like, oh, well, it's not getting the mileage we said it would, so we'll just send everyone a check to cover it. Or GM, oh, you have your key falling out of your ignition? That's a problem. Go ahead and bring that back because the government's going to make us. Right, right. No, I, That's not standing uh, behind your, your customers. You. Yeah. And, and Tesla continues to support their, their customers, which I think is kind of uh, a rare thing in the current business climate. Imagine if you could go out and buy a Mustang, just get a V6 or an EcoBoost, you know, that's what you could afford now. And then you drive <clears> it around for two or three years. And then, you know, you've had a raise at work. You know what? I'm ready for a GT. And so instead of, okay, well, I have to go into the dealership. They're going to give me, you know, $6,000 less than what I want for trade-in. So then I'll have to try and private sell it. Then I've got to get another one. What color do I want to get? I kind of like the same. If you like your car, with Tesla, uh, fun fact, a lot of their cars are built with more batteries than you paid for, and they're limited just by the software. So what they're able to do is you can go on your phone and say you bought a uh, P80D, we'll say, um, and you say, you know what, I wish I would have bought the 100. Okay, uh, you go on your app on your phone and you charge your card $3,500 and within a couple of minutes, you get a software update pushed to your car and all of a sudden it's a GT. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be wonderful if you could, you could buy what you could afford at the time and then, all right, I'm ready to, to move up. You know, a little bit of buyer's remorse should have gotten the bigger engine. It's just done. Or in the case of the hurricanes, you know, when there's a natural disaster, uh, Tesla generally gives out, free temporary upgrades for everyone's range. It's like, oh no, you have the long range model because you live in Florida and there's a hurricane coming and you need to get out. That's, you know, they don't have to do that, but that's a, that's a very, uh, it's a good way of getting, um, you know, a feel good story out there and getting a lot of positive equity uh, from your, from your customers is, is doing things like that. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. I, I don't, you know, I don't follow um, stocks or, or any of these companies very closely, but Shelly does. And she was telling me that uh, one of Elon Musk's other companies uh, specializes in um, 
I guess it's something for people with uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease that will allow them to communicate even if, you know, even if they can no longer speak or if they can no longer function, they can still communicate. Um, it's some type of company. I don't remember the name of it, but uh, it's one of his kind of um, other side projects. And I think it just kind of goes to show like maybe it's the person running the guy at the helm has a lot to do with how the company behaves and, and how the company, tr you know, just approaches its role in the world, you know, um, which I can really appreciate, uh, you know, with today's climate of in, in the corporate world is, is there's a lot of pretty sneaky and greedy and just gross things going on. And to see a company do something right and do thing continue to do things right. Um, I think that's pretty refreshing, um, you know, uh, standing by their customers and, you know, supporting, uh, you know, people with, um, you know, disabilities and, and trying to research some of that stuff. I don't know. I just, I find that kind of interesting to see that, uh, you know, especially with today's kind of climate. Yeah. And I, I really hope that some of these other, uh, companies like Riven and Nicola, if they do stick around, uh, that they can kind of do the same thing, show a little bit of philanthropy along with their, uh, with, with their products. Um, cause now we've got, a lot of competition uh coming into this because there's everyone knows about the cyber truck because you know the news uh and we we've been talking about this this nicola that gets you know great great numbers eight thousand pound, pounds of towing six thousand mile range mm -hmm. um but that one is actually uh a dual drive train setup it's not just electric but it also has a hydrogen fuel cell system uh included with it so that's going to kind of be you know it depends on how close you have hydrogen uh portland there's one or two um out here in texas i haven't found any um hard enough to find like e85 but you know that that's definitely interesting they they say that they're going to try to make more uh stations available but you know that's that's a big push Tes tesla's been working at that for years and their supercharger system is still fine still working on getting to the point that they need it to be um so that's where the i think the riven comes in riven they don't come up with good names for theirs. I think it's the R1T. <laughs> yeah, it's it's another very good looking car uh, with some some uh, very impressive uh, power numbers and you know four hundred plus miles, which is you know sounds more realistic and you know uh, the it'll tow about the same, uh, but it, it looks in some ways better, in some ways worse. Uh, it's, if you've seen anything on it, it's because, uh, it can do a tank turn because it's got a motor at each wheel. They set the two on the left to go forward and the two on the right to go backwards and it'll spin, uh, you know, in place and do a, a turn on a dime. Yeah, that's, that is super impressive. Um, and I, I, I didn't actually catch the, the powertrain it, it uh, was, was a, uh, fuel cell and EV. I think that's super interesting and, um, you know, kind of offers something that the other 
competition doesn't. Um, is it still a plug-in hybrid or a plug-in electric? So the e, the hydrogen is kind of a supplementary thing for extra range. Um, see, I think that's I think that's where it gets a, a bit tricky. Um, so it's a total range of six hundred, and that's a blended figure that includes the hydrogen. So it can run on the battery alone, but that's only three hundred miles. Okay. Uh, so, so it relies on the hydrogen to get its full range then? What I assume is that the hydrogen fuel cell works as a sort of a um, a range extender, like the little three-cylinder uh, engines on like the uh, BMW i3. And so, that, that, and so it, it also kind of has a torque curve in a way. Um, so the horsepower being at 900, that's just its peak, but it always runs at like 450 horsepower. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, it'll, it'll run on, on either one. Uh, uh, and it still has 950 foot pounds of torque either way. But I mean, it's a, it's a big lithium ion battery. I wonder how much this thing weighs because it's got 160 kilowatt hour battery and the biggest uh model s is a hundred i believe so this is going to be a a heavy thing which you have to tow that weight around all the time uh unlike a gasoline where as you run out of fuel the truck gets lighter this is going to be the same weight all the time um but i mean if it says it'll tow eight thousand pounds that's I'm, I, I shouldn't be too worried, I, I suppose. And again, this right. is the uh, Nicola Badger that we're speaking on currently. Right. Yeah, no, the, I think that of all, of all of the ones that you sent, I think that that's by far the best looking of the, of the uh, electric trucks. I think it looks the most, the most like a current truck. I, I still think it's kind of, overwrought but i i feel that way about most current pickups so if you put them kind of in with it uh i think i like everything but everything but the very front and the very back of the the ribbon a little bit better like the side profile i think is is appropriate um and i i don't know as much about the ribbon i know it's the uh it's it's the same company that made the vehicle that Hemmen crashed on uh, the Grand Tour. Um, and I think as these come out and we start seeing real um, tests of them and, you know, head-to-head of actual vehicles that are here, and, of course, they've got to compare them to the, the Hummer that's coming out and the electric F-150. Uh, do you think that those these established companies like ford they're basically taking an f-150 making it electric you've got gm which they have history with the volt and the bolt um and you know they're making kind of a ground up vehicle they say uh for the new electric hummer so they're established in the automotive game but are they going to be are are they going to be kind of held back by their gasoline counterparts uh you know limiting their 
design innovations or are they going to have a leg up on the competition by being established in the uh in the zeitgeist already well that's a good question um i don't know if i have an answer to that um i think I think Tesla has really paved the way for maybe uh, lesser known auto manufacturers to be more accepted. Um, Tesla did the startup thing very well and uh, succeeded uh, and, and has made, you know, some pretty fantastic cars and has been very popular. Um, so I think a lot of the success of the, uh, of the Nikola and the Riven uh, rely uh, on their, uh, I would say, both their marketing and their ability to, to, to deliver a product that consumers can relate to and will want to purchase. Um, and inevitably, the consumer has to put their faith in the company that they'll be around long enough to, uh, you know, uh, honor their warranty and provide replacement parts and have good reliability, which now Tesla and Ford and um, you know, GM have all had a proven track record of, of uh, you know, being being reliable, having decent warranties, and uh, delivering a product that meets consumer needs. Um, whereas the Riven and the Nikola have an uphill battle to prove that. So I think people will be more reluctant to buy those. But I think you know, if they're if they're able to position themselves in a way that that either offers more features that users or, or potential consumers are wanting to purchase, or if, uh, in the case of Nikola, if they're able to make hydrogen fuel more accessible, similar to how Tesla made fast charge stations more accessible, um, I think that there may be some merit there to get them kind of off the ground. But um, again, a lot of that goes back to their development and who's running the company and then, uh, you know, how that's perceived by, uh, the, by the American, uh, primarily American consumer. These are American companies, right? Yes. Um, okay. So a uh, complex question, I think, and, and hard to predict what will happen. Um, given that the buzz from Nikola and Riven has been fairly low, maybe Riven more than Nikola, um, at least from what I can gather, um, I'd say that their odds are lower than I would think uh, Tesla versus, versus the that was around Tesla when they first were coming out with some of their products. But, you know, again, I'm just speculating, so it, it's, hard to, it's hard to really say. I think if, if the Badger could deliver on their promises, I think that they probably have the most superior product of the, uh, of the bunch and the most interesting in terms of innovation. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, in my opinion, uh, the best looking as well. So, you know, they have a lot going for them in, in their design. But whether or not they can deliver that, it's it's hard to say, you know. And then again, at what cost? You know, what is the projected projected cost of these? Um, you know, relative to one another. You know, if the if the F-150 can undercut the rest by, you know, twenty thousand dollars, guess what? Somebody who wants an electric truck, they're going to be looking at that F-150 first. Um, so you know, it's it's it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. And we will definitely keep tabs on it uh, going forward. Uh, the only other, other bit, I got one little thing, uh, not a whole lot to say about it, but I'm, I'm a, a fan of small trucks. There's, uh, Ram put out a, uh, a little 
timeline showing uh, you know what vehicles they're going to be coming out with when and it, it seems like they're going to uh join ford and chevy in rejoining the mid-size pickup truck uh, oh. uh yeah it looks like they're gonna i don't know if they're gonna call it the dakota but they're gonna be bringing back uh, a mid-size truck again interesting um is it so I look, looked up some pictures of this. Um, and I couldn't find much on it because that's because sure it's it's, it's it's all renderings. None of nothing's official. Sure. Do we do we think the Dakota is going to be a like a sub model of the Ram uh, pickup, the like the fifteen hundred, or like a maybe a stripper model, or do we think it's going to be its own unique uh, product? Do we know maybe? I think it's going to be its own product because they they do uh, put it separately in the timeline as a as a different segment um okay. part of what the timeline was was showing uh dealerships like what they're what they're trying to uh, bring in to the market and and what you know they nailed down the percentages of each segment of the market you know so all the light duty trucks they've got the different size segments and how much of the market each one takes and they showed sure. that they kind of had this void in the growing midsize market because you know that size of truck that everyone said no that you know oh there's no money there well yeah. as ford and chevy have rejoined toyota and i guess nissan's technically still there um they've found that people are actually buying these things and that that market is growing as there's more competition so Rams decided that they've been missing out on a piece of that pie and, and that they should, they should cash in. And I love that idea. And although, although it's very realistic, the, uh, the rendering I've seen looks, I would believe that that's what it's going to look like. I think it's a bit homely maybe, but I'm, I'm not a huge fan of their current design language, uh, but it is an improvement over the 2008 dodge dakota so yeah boy howdy it doesn't take much um yeah no i'm i'm in 100 percent agreement with you i think uh the the dodge design language is, has been pretty poor in their trucks for a while with the exception i think of their 1500 and the more not the current uh design but maybe three or four years ago where they had kind of the um a little more aggressive front end with the uh with the lights kind of canted uh, downward and they were kind of a little more aggressive. They had the bumper in the rear that was molded around the exhaust, which looked kind of nice. Um, I think they've gone up and down since the mid two thousands. I don't, I don't think they've all been bad, but, um, right. uh, like I think that Chevy peaked in 2006 to 2008. And I think Ford peaked in Oh nine to 11, uh, and Dodge, it's just kind of hard to hard to nail it down with them because every mid cycle refresh is is very different, which is good, but mm -hmm. hard hard to say. Uh, let's just say Ford trucks were best from like sixty one to seventy nine, and we can just call it a day there. There it is. Uh, there it is. <laughs> um, that brings us maybe to our next topic. Do we want to do a retro tech segment real quick? Let's go right into it. All right. So um, back in the, uh, I guess, back in the 30s, 40s, um, and 50s, there was kind of an interesting add-on that people would um, put on their cars. 
Um, this was originally offered as a uh, as like a either a uh, something you could buy aftermarket or through the dealer, and it was a steering wheel mounted clock. Now I first saw this when I was back looking for um, of course 49 to 52 Chevy cars, um, and I was looking all over the place for these cars and um, ended up finding a video on YouTube where um, it was a, I think it was an Oldsmobile, uh, and it was a 50s Oldsmobile, wasn't quite a 49 to 52 uh, Chevy, but um, it's, uh, it had this, it, you know, it was, there was this video of this guy driving it, and he was driving down the road, and it had this beautiful, beautiful steering wheel with a clock uh, mounted to the steering wheel, and where the clock would normally mount to the dash, it had a compass, um, and it was it was, it blew my mind. I had to know more about this. Um, and so uh, in this video, the guy, uh, he zoomed in on the clock. And as you turn the wheel, the clock would stay upright. And from the back, there was a small window you could see. And you could see all these gears turning and this little mast hanging on the back of the, of the uh, clock to basically keep it upright. And then as you turn the the wheel to drive the car um, and as you steer left and right it would wind the clock for you so it was a self-winding essentially clock um, that was gyroscopic and would stay upright as the user drove and then on the dash there was a little compass that would rotate it looked like a kind of a navy like a ship compass you know that you would see in, in old vessels um, that would rotate um, depending on the direction you were going and i saw that and i just thought that was one of the coolest things I ever saw. So I decided to do some research um, on this. So these clocks uh, were originally um, uh, offered as a, uh, some, some had a wind-up mechanism, some of them used um, gyroscope uh, kind of effects to wind them as you turn the wheel. But um, they were first offered uh, by the dealer um, or, or I guess by a company uh, in 1951, and, and uh, that was uh, sold by Oldsmobile. And um, the first ones were manufactured by a company named uh, Marr, and uh, they made Swiss uh, clocks, watches. Um, and so what was unique about this is, uh, you know, Oldsmobile, they, um, they, I guess, either partnered with Marr or Marr uh, gave them the requirements of uh, how their how their steering wheel needed to look or to uh, the offsets and things that they needed to make it uh, properly work. So um, they uh, required, uh, Mar required Oldsmobile to make kind of their own bespoke steering wheel, turn signals, horn ring, all of this stuff for this particular um, option, this uh, factory option. So super, super neat, super, super rare, very hard to find. I think uh, last time I was looking on eBay, I think there was one on there for $1,200, something insane. But anyway, so uh, what was super neat about this, you know, of course it would stay as you, as you, uh, as you turn the wheel, stay kind of facing you so you can always tell the time. And then I guess later down the road, I didn't know this, but in my research, I found that Chrysler began offering those same clocks um, from 1954 to 1958. And they used um, a different company, uh, another Swiss company called Ben Roos. Um, and uh, Ben Roos, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, they were um, uh, 
they were, I guess they were called the Mopar-matic, the Chrysler-matic, the Plymouth-matic, and the Dodge-matic, and the DeSoto-matic. Um, and so they had, uh, they used a Gosden movement in the clocks, um, and they were uh, uh, painted, I guess the markings were painted with radiant, which is uh, better for nighttime visibility. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't very healthy for you, but uh, I'm sure that's not the only thing in old cars that's not healthy for you. Um, but in, anyway, uh, super interesting. And I guess later on uh, down the road, they would give uh, some of these uh, clocks to uh, to salesmen, um, and and some of these clocks that they would give to salesmen would have a clear glass or plastic uh, backing. I think most of them were glass. Um, and so when the dealer would try to sell, or the salesman would try to sell or upsell. Um, a potential client or potential a customer, one of these clocks, they would show them the uh, intricate, uh, intricate nature of the clock um, and uh, and how it would work. So um, this clear back glass, when they would uh, spin the clock, the the uh, the salesman would show them that how all the gears would rotate and how as you turn the wheel, you could see everything functioning behind. Um, the glass uh, case, which was super neat. And I guess those are pretty rare now to find. Um, but anyway, um, I thought this was a super interesting thing um, that I found and just super neat. Uh, if you get a chance, go look those up. They're super, super cool. Um, something you don't see in cars really nowadays. Um, and you know, if you do see clocks, they're almost certainly not on the steering wheel. And uh, generally they're just your typical digital display or an LCD display or something, uh, you know, kind of bland like that. But uh, to find something so ornate and so uh, interesting and, uh, you know, from these uh, past cars that, uh, you know, are no longer being made, it's just, it's so cool to see, you know, I guess some of the technology and some of the, you know, interesting things that they were willing to try back in the day and just that kind of perfect blend of, of mechanical um, ingenuity and artistic beauty, you know, you had the the gears and uh, the gyroscope and this beautiful clock and all of these kind of just novel, um, you know, blending of of art and um, and function. It was just so cool back in the day. And uh, you know, with this little segment, I hope to bring more of that, um, you know, more of that kind of uh, content um, in future episodes. So. Uh, with that, uh, Rainey, is there anything you, what do you think of these clocks? Do you think they're pretty neat? Do you think they're, um, if, if you've seen uh, pictures of them, um, you know, would, is that something you wish they would still do in modern cars? Uh, you know, some of that, some of that art and, uh, and kind of mechanical ingenuity. I, uh, I had an, an automatic winding watch like that uh, growing up and I did used to love watching uh, the, the piece on the back you could, you know, you could simulate when you would move your arm up and down. You could watch the way it would wind, and I, I love the idea of someone figuring that out. Of hey, we can just use your regular body movement that you're already doing, and yeah. and you know, pull this ability out of it. You don't have to worry about a watch battery. You don't have to worry about any of that. And you know, that on one hand, and on the other hand, I, I love getting in a car, whether it's an old Jag or or you know, that's just what what comes to mind that has an analog clock, uh, you know, in in the dash. I really like the idea of it being 
you know, front and center for you, uh, you know, much like pulling your watch in front of you. If you were to look at your watch or pull it in front of your steering wheel, it would sit right where these do on these old cars. So that's, it's already perfectly placed. It's kind of a heads up display for the, uh, you know, 1900s. Uh, I really do like it. I think that it classes up an interior to have a, an analog clock. And if you had one that didn't rely on the power and was, you know, had a winder and would click so that when you would stop and turn off the engine, you know, you would, you already hear the the clicks of the engine popping, but if you could get in in the morning when it's cold and hear that just very faintly, I think that would be, really really neat especially in a uh, true vintage automobile yeah hearing that and and just the uh the you know the conversation piece of having a self-winding excuse me self-winding watch in your steering wheel is very neat that was that was a fun uh trip down the information highway there i had no idea that these existed and i am uh i am better for knowing about them. Thanks for uh, sharing that. And I look forward to a uh, more retro, uh, retro corner uh, kind of informationals. Yeah. Hopefully I can uh, come up with enough uh, creative, interesting things that uh, existed back in the day to uh, continue this segment on for quite a while. You know, the, the ingenuity uh, and the creativity of, of, old engineers, uh, I think new, new, knows no bounds and, and uh, unfortunately is kind of lost in, in the days, in, in, in days like today, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of harmonious blend of art and, uh, and um, mechanical uh, aptitude, I guess, is just something that is, you don't see much anymore, um, in my opinion. Um, but anyway, yeah, so super, super interesting stuff. Um, and, uh, 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 hopefully we can maybe get Andy's input when he joins later on. Uh, yeah, I think, I think we may be, uh, we may be, um, signing off before he's able to join us. So, uh, unfortunately he'll, uh, he'll have to maybe chime in next week, see if he can jot down some notes when he listens, uh, on Thursday and, and let us, uh, let us know what he thinks, uh, come the next week. Um, but these are, these are some, some gorgeous clocks. Uh, they are. and I, I really do want to know, you know, his thoughts cause we're, we're both very, uh, very kind of old school. Uh, but he, he can appreciate some, some neat stuff sure. like this. I think this would, his engineering mind, he would, he would really, uh, really enjoy this. Right. Uh, next on our list, we'll be uh, we'll be going to to rides. Uh, I don't have I don't have very much, so I'll just go ahead and and knock it out. Uh, mine is more maintenance, just something that I don't think any of us have dealt with before. Um, so my uh, my family vehicle is a 2011 BMW X5 diesel. So the end of that, the diesel part is oh what i've been dealing with lately generally it's wonderful it's been fine hasn't been uh you know the, the problem that some people thought it might have been 
But just like anything, there are issues. Um, for the second time now, we've gotten a warning light uh, saying that our diesel exhaust fluid uh, is running out. Now, the way that BMW designed these is that the exhaust fluid should last over 10,000 miles. Uh, and so it should be refilled when you do your 10,000 mile oil change. Um, so, you know, it, then it'll be no problem to the customer. They're already taking it in for the oil change. And maybe that's a way to make sure people come in before going way over the oil change limit, you know, uh, not a bad idea, but I don't know if we have a crack in our housing, but we had to fill it up once before our trip down here and, and uh, the light came on yet again. Um, so I, I looked at, at trying to get it in, but we didn't have a, a time where we could really give up the, uh, the only family hauler since we're still waiting for the, the five series someday to make its way south. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to get my hands dirty on a car again, uh, believe it or not. Um, so I uh, looked it up on YouTube. YouTube is full of wonderful tutorials. I'm, I'm sure, Jeff, you've used, uh, you know, the YouTube educational service for uh, many of your projects. I have done that a few times. It's it's very useful. You go through a lot of, a lot of bad videos and then you'll find one you'll go, what else does this person do just because, yeah. you know, they, they know how to speak my language and it's just that, you know, correct level of polish. Um, and I, I found a guy who explained it and showed it very clearly. I was worried this was going to be like doing an oil change that was going to be hard to get to. It was going to be around hot metal parts. Nope. This was much more akin to uh, filling washer fluid or a radiator overflow. Uh, there's an active tank up by the passenger headlight and then a pa larger passive tank um, under the uh, intake spout. So the one by the headlight, very simple. You could uh, almost hand loosen uh, this little threaded piece, take it out and uh, put in your, your diff fluid. They have a, a neat bottle that I uh, I did not get, but... It, uh, it has a, a valve on it, so you can take the cap off, turn it upside down, screw it directly into the internal threads of this, uh, of this reservoir, and then push down on the bottle, opening the valve, and it'll automatically flow till it's full, and then simply stop. And then you pull up to lock it, unscrew it, no mess, no fuss. And I'll definitely do that next time because... I made a mess with this urea. And if you know what urea is, it's not fun. So that was pretty, pretty easy other than, uh, you know, handling the two and a half gallon jug in a cardboard box. Uh, you know, it's kind of like giving your BMW box wine. And the uh, passive tank wasn't much more difficult. There's a, a little snorkel that leads from the uh, from the plenum, the airbox, uh, down into a spot by the radiator um, to pull extra air up and in. Um, and so there's just one little tab. You push in, pull up, and pull out. And the whole 
whole apparatus comes right out. Took me no more than seven seconds. And then there's another little thing you unscrew. You do the same thing on the other side. Uh, in total, it should take 10 liters. And uh, I put in probably about eight. Uh, so it was it was getting pretty pretty down there. It was down to about 350 miles of the roughly 10 to 12,000 mile range for the diesel exhaust fluid. Now, for those who don't, don't know, diesel exhaust fluid simply uh, is is a way to honestly to keep BMW from being this in the same position that Volkswagen was with their quote unquote clean diesels. Uh, it's a it's a spray that is sprayed into the exhaust system that uh, gets rid of you know changes the chemical composition of the of the exhaust gases to make it compliant with um, you know EPA for all the countries it's sold in. Um, so not super interesting, but it's something I had never done before, and it's different than on a pickup truck where there's a little there's a tank there's a spot right next to your your diesel fill up. Um, that you just pour it in. This was kind of two tanks. Uh, hopefully I don't have a cracked tank because that looks to be quite a bigger job. Um, any uh, any questions on the diesel exhaust fluid? No, I, I actually, uh, I never, you know, I've heard it mentioned from friends at work um, that have diesel trucks, but honestly, I never had heard of the process to, uh, you know, replace it. So, um it seems pretty easy. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard it can cause a lot of pain, you know, when you're, you have faulty sensors and, and whatnot. Um, yeah, there's uh, one more thing to go wrong. Uh, and on pickup trucks, they, uh, they go through it a lot quicker. Um, oh, so sure. you have to be more on top of it. Uh, generally people, you can get them at most gas stations. Just, you'll see it. It's, uh, DEF, a lot of different companies make it, and DEF is DEF. Doesn't matter if it's Peak or it's um, Ad Blue or or uh, whatever brand. It's all the same uh, chemically to do the job. It has to be, um, you know, like uh, gasoline is is the same anywhere you go. But you know, there can be some slight change in detergents, but it'll do the job either way. Um, but yeah, they have to fill up a little bit more often with it. But since it's right next to the to the diesel fill it's it's not so hard gotcha. oh I, yeah i'm glad you were able to get it kind of you know handled and you know not have to take it in that's pretty cool yeah and it was twelve dollars to pick up uh two two and a half gallons of it so it's not expensive that is so, your type of uh that is your type of vehicle maintenance yep twelve dollars <laughs> and took me all of half an hour to go out and get it and do it so right. took care of a thing Perfect. Um, you have more uh, in-depth <laughs> in-depth work that you have to do on on your cars, including inspection periods. Uh, so, what do you? Uh, what's what's new? Um, so, I uh, drove the Chevy to Lincoln City this weekend for my uncle's seventieth birthday, and that was a pretty fun drive. The it, it Lincoln City is on the Oregon coast. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so kind of uh, in the middle Portland, of the state, from Portland to uh, Lincoln City is about two hours, and uh, Lincoln City is on the coast. And um, uh, Shelly and I went down there to visit him for his seventieth, and, and you know, wish him a happy birthday, kind of surprise him a little bit. And 
we drove the Chevy uh, because right now the Falcon is torn apart in the garage and the Bronco does not have its interior back yet. And I don't drive the Mustang. So um, I drove the Chevy <laughs> and, uh, you know, on the, on the road, it actually does pretty good other than the uh, anything above 60 miles an hour. The wipers kind of lift off the windshield and stop wiping water off the windshield. But uh, other than that, it's a pretty good driving car. And, it, and, you know, of course, after 65, the wind noise uh, gets something pretty fierce. And, uh, you know, even the radio doesn't help it at that point. So you're kind of just dealing with noise. But uh, below 65, it's pretty tolerable to be in. Um, anyway, so when I get there, yeah, you know, I wanted to drive over uh, the day we got there to surprise my uncle. And uh, so I pull into my parents' house. They live on this big hill and it's kind of windy. And I pulled into their driveway and, you know, I'm scraping my bumper as I'm pulling it in their driveway. And uh, I asked, you know, I'm like, hey, let's all take the Chevy over, drive over to my aunt and uncle's house. Okay, let's do it. You know, and, you know, it took a little coaxing because they don't want to ride in an old car. They're just too pampered. They want to ride in their nice, fancy Escalade and, you know, be happy and comfortable. Um, so after I got them all coaxed in my car, we're all loaded up and I start driving and I hear this noise and it's just kind of this, kind of this grindy kind of, uh, noise. And I'm like, that's the drive shaft. We're just driving on the drive shaft right now. It's just rubbing right on the floor. Um, so I, uh, said, let's not, let's not make the trip and let's take your Escalade. And, uh, when I get back home, I will adjust the suspension. So uh, next day when I got home, uh, I think I actually, the following day after I got home, I, I uh, pulled the, I had to pull the gas tank anyway, because my sending unit broke. Um, I bought a replacement sending unit um, from a uh, uh, company here local, and it broke within a year. And so uh, for the fourth time now, I've had to drop the gas tank, which if you've ever dropped a gas tank full of gas, it freaking sucks. It is just the most awful job to do by yourself but um anyway so i dropped that replaced the um sending unit and while i was there i said okay let's just adjust the suspension so i was going i had three inches of adjustment built into the suspension and then some adjustment in the coilover for preload um i actually turned the coilovers the wrong way and added preload to the coilovers when my intent was to move the suspension adjustment up an inch and reduce the preload oh, coilovers about half so get it all done. I put it back together. I'm like, wow, that's sitting really high. That looks terrible. So and rather than pull the coilovers back off and adjust the preload, I just dropped it down to its lowest setting. And uh, basically right now I currently have uh, have added about a half an inch to what the, the rear of the car was. And it was kind of getting a little saggy from, um, from me being in it and from just driving it. So it leveled out the rocker pretty nice. And I also, wow, um, the panhard bar was disconnected and while the suspension was dropped down. I also trimmed a little bit more of the floor brace out to add some clearance for the drive shaft. So, um, so far I, I actually loaded a couple of dumbbells into the back of it, um, on my way home today. and, uh, about 180 pounds right over the rear, uh, axle and I didn't bottom out at all. So I'm feeling pretty confident that all, uh, this will have been a, a substantial improvement in, uh, in ride. Um, despite the small sacrifice and looks for uh, not being as low, it's pretty depressing to raise your power. Um, so yeah, but that uh, it sounds like it's going to work out if it's going to give you a little bit better ride and like it won't if it won't bottom out as easy, 
that's gonna that's gonna pay dividends mm-hmm. yeah and uh of all the times i've bottomed out the drive shaft on that car i'm almost wondering if i might have a little bend in it because it does vibrate a decent amount when i drive but uh you know i guess the last thing i want to have happen is to break the tail shaft tail shaft off the transmission like they did on uh roadkill garage and uh, some of their episodes where they had a badly balanced drive shaft i think they don't were, do that they think they were in a chevelle they were doing their crew cab chevelle and they uh were doing a trying to go top speed you know so they built uh, built this whole thing up and they were they had this thing just pinned on this you know mile stretch of road and got it up to about a hundred and hundred and get 111 um i think the tail shaft broke at like 80 something and just you know on their, on their first pass or something like that and it just started making just nasty noises and they you thought originally it was a drive shaft, but no, just completely grenaded the tail shaft housing. So I'm going to try to avoid that. So I might go see if I can get a balance. But um, anyway, so the other thing I found um, was, you know, I uh, I leave my Falcon outside most of the time. It's just where it's in. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a it's just a sweet, sweetheart of a little car. I love the little thing. Um, but uh, I started noticing, you know, after my Bronco fiasco with the water getting in the Bronco, I started trying to pay attention a little more closely to the Falcon. And so I noticed there was some dampness, not much, but a little bit of dampness on the passenger side floor in the morning when I got there. Driver's side floor seemed to be okay. Um, so I, uh, I was kind of digging around with flashlight and I started noticing at the very bottom of the heater core where, they, where the seam comes together little bit of water coming down through there so i um you know i look at that oh great so i decided to pull it in the garage pull the heater core and, and the box and all that crap out and um trying it up inside the heater box and if you don't know what falcon cow looks like it's almost identical to 64 to 66 mustang cow it's got these two um, basically vent tubes one goes to the heater box one goes to the pressure vent and they're inside of cow that is not removable or acceptable in any way, um, which is great for servicing and, and rough proofing. And, you know, from factory, they didn't do any of that, which it was just basically um, oxide steel and, you know, that was it. So, uh, so basically, this has just been left sitting up, you know, in the elements with minimal rust protection on it. And, uh, you know, it's probably about time to do something. And years ago, I put some phosphoric acid on it and uh, etched it and then I dumped some rust oil down the cow to try to like you know do something try to try to get it to get it some type of protection that seems to have held up okay but on the backside where my spray can wouldn't reach um near the outside of the car there was a small little rust hole in the tube on the passenger side um maybe the size of a uh, airsoft bb or a bb gun uh, bb and uh so I'm like, great, what's that mean for the rest of it? So I started kind of poking around. Fortunately, everything else on that side was pretty solid. Um, so just last night, I pulled the heater or the, uh, the fresher vent on the driver's side. And then tonight, I went up in there, looked at everything. Everything seemed okay. Um, and I rubbed it down with some phosphoric acid. Um, and then, uh, and then uh, tomorrow, once that dries and sets up, I'll clean it with some mineral spirits, throw some paint on there. And in the little area where I had the little rust hole, I'm going to throw a little seam sealer. I know that's not the right fix, um, but I'm not going to drill out my windshield frame, my 
cowl, uh, pull apart my wiper transmissions just to fix a small little rust hole. But what I do plan to do is blow out any of the debris that's inside of the cowl. And they make these little covers for your cows in these cars in particular from uh, the 60 Falcon all the way up to the 66 Mustang because this is a very well-known problem for these cars. Um, you can make, they make little magnetic covers that cover the cow and have a nice little seal uh, to prevent water and debris from getting inside of there. So if you ever want to feel just like automotive sympathy, go look up Falcon or Mustang cow rust and just see the process involved in replacing that. And, uh, and suddenly you'll, you'll realize why people don't want to fix it or why generally, if that's the case with a car, they'll just kind of uh, forget about it and uh, not fix it. So there, it's, it's a pretty catastrophic thing to find cow rust like that. And if you can get ahead of it while you have the opportunity, you should. Um, so if you have a Falcon or a Mustang, a classic one, um, you know, and you don't have cow rust at this point in time, take the, take the preventative step, get it treat the cow, treat the underside of the dash, um, paint it if you can, and then do, uh, you know, get a cow cover to uh, keep it long-term. I know most people don't keep their cars outside, but uh, my garage situation uh, doesn't allow me to keep all my cars inside. So um, of the cars that sit outside, the Falcon, unfortunately, is one of them. And, uh, and uh, I would like to keep it as long as I can in the best shape possible. So um, I'm going to do the best fix I can uh, at the time I have right now without uh, completely dissecting the car. Um, so. Wow, that's that's quite a an issue that you're dealing with there. Um, I, I know about the cowl issues from uh, when I foolishly thought that I could restore a uh, first-generation Mustang. I remember spending countless hours researching and um, looking up different things on eBay, and I kept seeing, you know, cowl rust, the floorboards, and the um, uh, and the trunk were always always rusted out those were pretty much always to do and um the ones that were sought after were the ones with good cowls because the other ones were pretty easy cut and weld uh applications but the cowl was just seemed to be such a pain in the first gen mustangs and i, I would assume it's no easier in the falcon it's um, actually uh quite a bit worse i think in the falcon well not quite a bit it's it's very similar if not slightly worse um, yeah, that would be that would be no fun um, uh, uh, doing that. I I would not. Yeah, if if you can find, uh, you know, a good enough solution that's going to keep it keep it running and keep it up to its own standard, because you know that that car is meant to be a driver, a survivor kind of, you know, tinker here and there, but that's never going to get a a frame off restoration um, done to it. So. You know, there's there's a certain level that if you know if you restored something too much, then everything else looks bad around it, and then you end up like me tearing the whole thing apart. So, right. yeah, if you can keep it from getting worse and kind of uh, you know get get that magnetic cover, which you know seems like a, a really ingenious uh, a way of doing it. So that magnetic cowl that just goes on when it's going to be parked and you take it off when you drive. 
Yep, that's exactly it. So if you if you're you know parking your car, you just slap that on every night when you get home and pull it off in the morning when you get ready to leave. Um, you know, because you know I drive my car enough in the rain and stuff, so um, my cow will see water. That's just a given. I can't avoid that because I'm not going to stop driving it and just keeping it in a show car. That's not that's not my style. That's not what I do. But, but if you can keep it from sitting there uh, for, you know, two or three weeks because, you know, you revolve your cars mm-hmm. and if it sits there for a couple of weeks with minimal or no, you know, driving to try and clear that water out and it's just going to have stagnant water kind of sitting there. Yeah. If you could keep that out, that would be, that would be huge because, you know, we know it's harder on a car to sit than to drive. Mm-hmm. So. If you're going to have it sitting like that, having a cover on something like that, you know, and that's, that's not as, as arduous as, you know, people may say, oh, we'll just get a car cover and cover it. What are you going to do that every night? That'll get old after a few months. Right. And, you know, where I'm at, um, there's a lot of critters, a lot of raccoons and possums and anytime there's anything that they can get underneath, they'll get underneath it. We had a wood pile. They were all living in there. You know, they scratch their way into our crawl space before. So, you know, the second I put a car cover on there, they're going to be under there first thing. Um, so I'm I'm trying to avoid that if I can. And honestly, in my opinion, putting a tarp over a leaky car isn't a solution. But doing something kind of slick like this would help. And and really, the the big culprit and the reason these towels rust out on these cars isn't so much just water it's the design of the cowl itself and the way the air flows um when you when you look at the way they're designed air flows uh, and blows debris like needles and leaves get inside the cowl um the airflow will bro- blow the debris out um past the air tubes but on the back side of the air tubes where the debris where there's no airflow anymore the debris will collect in that area and then they start to rust and um What's funny in the way that I was able to view inside my cow was I took my my uh, phone, I turned the video camera on with the light on, and I shoved it up in there because you can't really get anything up inside there to see. You definitely can't even get your hand or even a finger because it's so tight up against the cow. But what you can do is you can slide your phone up in that little airspace and you kind of work it around the little uh, you know the little hole there for the heater core and the, and the fresh air vent, and you're able to see. Even on my car, which I think I keep pretty pretty good shape, um, lots of needles and leaves and stuff that have just not been able to evacuate themselves um, from the uh, from the cow area um, because of lack of airflow. And uh, and of course, you know, later on down the road, what Ford did in like my Bronco was they put grommets on the firewall side, and uh, and. Uh, they, you're able to one get something in there like a toothbrush, and two you're able to get something in there to spray, so you can actually spray a protective coating in there on some of those. Um, whereas on the Falcon, you really just can't. So um, there's two schools of thought uh, on kind of how to best do this, and I had a couple ideas. One was you can do um, paint if you can get a spray can in there with like a flexible tube. Is the paint inside the cowl once it's all clean? That's, I think, the best option if you can etch it and then, and then paint it. The other option, too, is to do something like a boiled linseed oil or some type of, you know, non-destructive um, oil or, I, I hate to say silicone, but some type of coating similar to that that will kind of keep 
like a water repellent. Um, one interesting thing, and I don't know if we have a small amount of time to talk about this that I thought was interesting. Um, one of my favorite YouTube channels uh, is called Project Farm. And they, uh, this guy, he does all types of comparisons of different products on the market. doesn't matter what it is. Uh, he's not sponsored or paid by anyone. He'll, he'll do all these types of different, really interesting, mostly scientific tests um, where he kind of compares the performance of all these different products. And one of the interesting things I found was a lot of the new styles of automotive undercoating, which is something I would consider putting inside of the cow, um, are not rubberized like they used to be. They are, uh, some of them are lanolin based. Some of them are uh, petroleum based. And they based like, uh, like sheep's wool. Like sheep's wool. Uh, they are, uh, they're basically, uh, think of it as spraying. And this is a highly, highly uh, inaccurate thing to say, but think of it as spraying WD 40 all over your car. Um, you're basically creating just like a liquid barrier between salts, grime, and and uh, and um, any other rust-promoting uh, um, uh, elements, uh, and creating a barrier between that and your under and the underside of your car. And uh, he, you know, he compared how how well it withstands water and pressure and temperature and all this stuff. And uh, you know, surprisingly, the ones that did porous were the rubberized ones. And the ones that perform best in in general were like the lanolin ones and some of the others the highly non-toxic ones actually did really well so you know if it's something simple like that where you can just reapply this coating every six months to a year similar to how i did the boil linseed oil on my paint and you you're able to protect your car from rusting that's another way to go about doing this um the thing i'd be leery of with that kind of uh path forward is um, doing anything with like a silicone paste can ruin your car forever for, uh, from future painting. Um, you know, why people don't put WD-40 on uh, cars or whatever, or anything silicone based. Uh, body shop guys keep keep stuff out of the uh, shop uh, for that reason. So. Yeah, that, that channel seems very interesting. He, he compares everything he compares you know mobile one um oil to amazon basics and he compares uh wiper blades and and all these things just in his own barn and in uh in his property and and like you said he's not sponsored by anyone he he speaks very frankly about what he thinks uh but he also goes over the scientific method of of how he's going to test things and he even points out the flaws in his own tests because without having a full laboratory it's not going to be a, a perfect test so he points out where there could be discrepancies and he really does try to give you an education as he shows you it's not well this is the one that i think is better it's here's here's my hypothesis and here's you know how i test it and you know why i think it's a good test and here's the results and you know, he gives his opinion, but also leaves it very much uh, kind of a you be the judge sort of a decision. I think that's probably a good place to to snoop around. And if nothing else, it's it's pretty entertaining to see, um, you know, how different things perform under different uh, specific tests that maybe, you know, 
the brands didn't have in mind when they made it. They didn't think anyone would uh, test them in, in such a way. So yeah, that, that seems interesting. And it seems like you've got uh, kind of a couple different ways of thinking about how to repair that, uh, you know, short term and long term. Right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of funny that we started talking about Project Farm. Um, I hate to deviate too much from rides for a minute, but I'm going to. Um, the uh, One of my favorite videos he had and just kind of speaks to kind of what you were saying and how open minded he is about things. He uh, mentioned he did a comparison of, uh, of, of, of like penetrating oils. So uh, WD-40, Seafoam Deep Creep, Liquid Wrench, and uh, PB Blaster, a couple others, you know. And he even admitted in the beginning, he's like, I've always been a fan of PB Blaster. And me too. Like I use the, the heck out of the stuff on all my old cars. Um, you know, everything's rusted and seized. And so he did all types of different in-depth, uh, in-depth, uh, you know, tests on these. And uh, believe it or not, the two that came out on top in, in Dren, you know, overall were um, Seafoam Deep Creep and Liquid Wrench, which was very inexpensive. And so he even said he was very shocked by the results of the uh, of the test. And I was pretty stoked to see, you know, just just prove even proving my own thoughts wrong, you know, like. I can't argue with facts and I'm not going to try, but next time I go to the store, guess what I'm going to buy? Not, not, uh, not PB Blaster anymore. You know, um, I, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not so brand loyal that, uh, that I'm not going to, I'm going to ignore the science and the, uh, and the results of, of his work. You know, I think what he's doing is super, super beneficial and super interesting. And, uh, and I really appreciate what he does for, uh, for that kind of stuff, you know, cause a lot of times you go to the store and you get 10 different brands of epoxy or whatever, and you don't know the difference. You know, you're looking at Loctite, you're looking at 3M, you're looking at JB Weld, you don't know which one's going to perform best. You're just going by brand. They're all about the same price. They all advertise, you know, oh, 10,000 PSI tensile strength. And, you know, you, you're just kind of going off the cuff. And, you know, when it fails you, you're like, well, I probably didn't prep it well enough or darn it, you know, that sucks. I guess I'm going to have to come up with something else. But, in reality, some of those products are, are actually quite inferior to other products. And, you know, he does a really good job of capturing that. And, uh, yeah, not to, not to, uh, to praise, sing his praises too much, but I thought his, his channel is pretty good. And if you guys get a chance, give it a listen or, or check out some of his videos. Yeah, definitely, definitely something worth, worth checking out. Um, I think that pretty much uh, uh, does it. Do you have uh, Do you have anything else uh, in rides? No, nothing really in rides. Um, you know, Fiat's uh, got some plans here in the next uh, few days to button the Falcon back up. I had some stuff I got to fix on the heater core anyway, and then I'm gonna block off my uh, driver air vent. So hopefully, I'll have an update next time and how well all of that went and had no problems, and it's all back on the road and everything's perfect. Wonderful. Well, we're looking forward to, uh, you know, seeing, seeing the rest of your stuff up and going. Uh, and if you want to see more of that stuff, uh, I'm going to continue to update the, uh, the Instagram page for the, uh, for the show garage night podcast on Instagram. Um, and, uh, we did get up some pictures last week. We referenced, uh, Andy's, uh, rally scort, and I did get some pictures up with a 
short video of the flapper in action. Uh, thanks to uh, Jeff and Andy for contributing uh, their pictures of it. Um, and uh, definitely, if you want to see more of our uh, of our ride, you can go to the uh, gallery at tinydogpodcast.com. Check out the gallery. You can check out uh, all the stuff. We also have bike night stuff on there. And uh, uh, if you're into video games, definitely check out just another podcast or just another side quest, excuse me, uh, is our uh, new podcast on video games. It's out every two weeks. Um, and uh, from from there, I suppose uh, uh, from all of us here, we're, uh, we're looking forward to having Andy back next week for sure. Um, but as far as tonight, Jeff, do you have any uh, any final thoughts going out? Oh, no, just, uh, you know, drive old cars, like I always say. Um, you know, old tech's better than new tech. <laughs> Definitely check out those those uh, clocks. Uh, where would they find uh, literature, literature on those those uh, those clocks, the self-winding clocks? So there's a site called uh, Roadkill on the Web, and then there's another site uh, called Haggerty. Uh, they sell insurance, but they also have a pretty neat article on those clocks. Um, one of uh, which I was able to reference for uh, some of the information I uh, gave you guys. So um, check that out if you want to do a little more reading. Um, and of course, jump on uh, eBay or uh, Google Images and, and uh, see what you can find because some of them are pretty, pretty dang neat. So self-winding steering wheel clock, that and, um, and the uh, uh, Project Farm uh, YouTube, he's got almost a hundred thousand yeah almost a hundred thousand subscribers am i looking no almost a a million subscribers so he's uh quite well known perhaps we're uh the ones finding out about him late but yeah definitely check that stuff out and uh for me you know what don't be afraid go get a uh go get a german car just uh keep on top of it and don't just take it straight to the dealership because I know for a fact that it's $120 to have that def uh, refilled when you can do it for 12 bucks on your own. So you're saying just pour def on your BMW and it will solve its problems? Yes, just uh, your best bet is to pour it through the sunroof. You just crack it open a little bit, pour mm -hmm. it right in, and yeah. you'll be just fine. And uh, on, on that note of uh, advice to never follow, I will... Uh, Bid everyone a uh, good night. Good night, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Garage Night Podcast. A special thanks for Jeff Tracy and Annie Tamlin for joining the show this week. Until next week, keep turning wrenches.